So in this time that we have together with us this morning, we're going to dive into a part of Scripture in the book of Romans in just a couple of minutes. But before we do that, I just want to remind again what, what Bill was able to tell us as he was up here giving announcements, that we do have a spring cleaning day coming up uh, this coming Saturday, a day to look around the building to fix things up, to make things look a little nicer, to make sure our community appreciates what, what, what's going on here in this location. So we want to make sure that we're doing that, we're keeping up with what we're supposed to be doing. Now, that idea of spring cleaning is an important one. Cleaning up after a couple of months of maybe neglecting or not really paying attention to or not focusing on the things we were supposed to focus on. I think for many of us, this is that season where we start to clean up, where we start to make things look right in our lives, in our homes. Uh, everyone has that one catch-all drawer in their kitchen that they throw everything into that drawer where you've got batteries that don't work, coupons that have expired, that one drawer that we all have to clean around this time of year. For me, I always have this one part of my life that I need to clean up right around this time of the year, and that's my wallet. For some reason, I end up hoarding a lot of things in my wallet, and so over time, I end up with things that I don't even use or need in my wallet. Ladies, many of you with your, with your purses, you may be doing the same, where you look through it and you realize, why did I keep this stuff for so long? I, I often look into my wallet, I'll find things like expired credit cards. I'll find a driver's license from New Jersey. I haven't driven in New Jersey in over 10 years, but I have a driver's license from New Jersey. I have a library card from Melrose. I haven't lived in Melrose in probably six years, but I have a library card from Melrose. And all of these old expired things sit in my wallet. In fact, a couple of years ago, I finally had the courage to remove my Blockbuster video card from my wallet. <laughs> I, have a, I have a frequent flyer miles card for Continental Airlines still in my wallet. Continental Airlines hasn't been around for at least 10 years. This is what we do. We keep these things on us, thinking that we may use them at some point, but here's the truth of the matter. Every one of those cards meant something at one point. Every one of those cards meant I had an affiliation with some sort of organization. I could use my Melrose Library card to take out a book in Melrose. I could use my New Jersey driver's license to drive in the United States. I could use my Blockbuster video card to rent a video at Blockbuster. At one point, every one of those cards gave me an affiliation to something. Here's the, the secret, though. Over time, when those cards became irrelevant, I could externally show an affiliation to something. That doesn't mean I actually have that affiliation. There's no Blockbuster video for me to go and rent a video at. There is no Continental Airlines for me to fly at with. There is no credit card company that will pay for me to use their services when the card is long expired. I can show affiliation. doesn't mean I actually have affiliation. We're clear what that means. Just because I can show an association with something doesn't mean I have an association with something. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans, and we've been diving through the first two chapters over the last couple of weeks. The first chapter, we really went very deep into looking at why people who are far from Christ need the gospel. And then over the last few weeks, we've been looking at why moral people need the gospel. And today we're going to look into the simple truth that even Christians need the gospel. And that's what we're going to study today. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to turn to the book of Romans. We're going to look in chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. 
I'm going to read verses 17 through 29. Verses 17 through 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, it will be the verses will be available on the screen, or there are Bibles in the seat right in front of you as well. We read there like this: Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior, because you are instructed by the law. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Verse 25 says, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Verse 29, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. It's kind of a difficult passage, an awkward passage, something that we kind of have to address and figure out. There is an awkward word that begins with C that's in this entire section that we have to figure out what is the meaning of that word. What is that word? Christian, very good. So this is what we're ultimately here to figure out, is what does it mean to be a Christian? And we'll get to that other word in just a minute. It's awkward. It's weird to think about this, but this was the heart of so many people's faith for so many thousands of years. It was this idea that I, as a Jewish person, was a set-apart, I was a special, unique person in the plan of God. I had importance because of my culture, because of my faith, my belief system, and what God had done for me as a people. It was important to them to have this outward sign of an inward faith. It was an outward reality of an inward truth. And that's what the Jewish people held on to. And that's who Paul writes this to. The, the really religious, moral people of the day. People who went to services. People who actually took part in ministry. Who served other people. To them, Paul writes about why it's so important for us to need the gospel. Let's address that other word. The word circumcision. Why it's so important. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with one man back in the book of Genesis. And that covenant in the book of Genesis chapter 17 was a relationship, a binding, everlasting covenant between God and Abraham. And in that covenant, God made a relationship, a special bond with this man and said, Abraham, even though you are a hundred years old, even though your wife is 90 years old, even though you have no children, 
I will make you the father of many nations. I will make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. I will bless your nations and the people and the generations that come from you. All I ask is that you honor me, obey me, and follow after me. It was a covenant, not a contract or a deal or a handshake agreement. It was a covenant, an everlasting agreement between God and Abraham and his generations. And any time a covenant was made in the Old Testament, there had to be a witness to the covenant. There had to be someone or something that could witness that this covenant was made. And the day that Abraham and God made their covenant, this was the witness that God left for Abraham and his generations. That every male among you, when he's eight days old, will be circumcised. And the symbol would be a very significant one. That the cutting away of the flesh would represent that you are cut away and separate and unique and dedicated to God in your heart. That outward symbol was supposed to represent an inward truth. That you knew how much you belong to God, how much you rely on God, how much God loves you. And as a result of that, you did this covenant. You made this symbol on your external body so that the generations would know that you are different, you are special, you are unique. And over time, that symbol became so important to the people of God. That symbol meant everything because if you were circumcised, it meant that, look, I have dedicated my life to God. My family, my life, my generations are all dedicated to God. And at the same time, if you knew someone that wasn't, it was a simple sign that they were stubborn and rebellious toward God. And over time, the people became so caught up in the external symbol that they forgot the inward truth that it was supposed to represent. And this is where so many of us are today. And this is why Paul is writing to even us in 2016 in New England and telling us that we all have the temptation to trust our affiliations, to trust the outward symbols, to trust all the things we do in church and forget to trust in God. Tim Keller, the, the pastor in New York, has often said that there is the sickness, there is a problem where we can trust Christianity more than we even trust Christ. There is a temptation that lives in us all that if I show up to church, if I do certain things, if I act the role, if I play the part of a Christian, that's good enough. If I pray, if I sit before God and I do this exercise every day, then I am right before God and everything is okay. But over the generations, Paul understood that the Jewish people that he was writing to all over the known world at the time had slowly slipped into a little bit of a sickness where they thought that, hey, I have all the external, outward stuff that makes me look like a good person. Meanwhile, Paul knew that inside their hearts there was something that was separating them from God, and he needed to address that first. Think about it. How many of us have a checklist in our minds of the things that make us Christians or make us believers in Christ? The checklist. Just like if I wanted to become a policeman or a firefighter or a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, there's certain things that I have to check off in order to become one of those things. I have to go to college, take a certain test, or pass a certain physical fitness exam. I have to check off certain things in order to call myself a firefighter or a policeman or whatever those, those occupations are. And Paul says for many Christians, we've gotten to a point where we just check off things on a checklist. 
I show up to church. I give. I'm not mean to anyone. I take care of my family. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't smoke. I don't drink. Whatever. We have a checklist in our mind. And as long as I check off those little boxes, then I'm fine with God. I'm right with God. And Paul says in Romans, it's time for us to wake up. To wake up and understand all of those external things are important. They're important and they're good and God sets up those boundaries for a reason. But if we're just doing those external things because we need to do those external things and not thinking about the inward truth that it represents, then there's something that still separates us from God. There's something that still breaks us apart from God. You know, a recent study was done of folks in America who consider themselves Christians. Do you know 71% of Americans call themselves Christian? About 30% of all Americans actually attend some sort of religious service weekly. So you're already seeing a little bit of, a, of an gap there. 88% of people said they own a Bible. 80% of Americans think the Bible is sacred. 61% wish they read the Bible more. And the average household in the United States has four Bibles in it. That's not even including the computer, the internet, the phone, the iPad, and everything else that could potentially have the Bible on it. We have Bibles. We have people who call themselves Christians. We have plenty of those in this country. But ask yourself a question. Is calling yourself a Christian enough? Is having a Bible in your house enough? Is going to church enough? And at some point, we have to understand that Christ has called us to live a life where our outward reflection, our life being an outward reflection of an inward truth. That we can't simply have the external signs that make us look like a Christian if nothing on the heart has actually changed. I've heard a story about a town where there was a large clock in the window of a clockmaker. And each day there was a factory owner in that town who would walk past that shop and adjust his watch to the clock. And never would a day go by without him checking that his watch was in time with the clock. <laughs> One day he met with the owner of the watch shop and he told him how much he relied on the accuracy of his clock because the factory horn was always timed by his watch. That's funny, said the watchmaker. I always time my clock by your horn. <laughs> I hope you understand what that means. Many times we think we are right, we're doing the right thing, I'm showing up, right? I'm giving, right? I'm doing the right things, but ultimately we're setting our watch to some other watch is all we're setting our watch to. We're setting our time based on something we think is steadfast and always right, and we're just setting our watch thinking that, look, I'm right. I'm doing the right things. I'm doing the Christian things. And please, again, don't get me wrong how important those things are. But if our heart does not match up with what we are doing, then there is a break there. And Paul tells the believers in Rome, he tells them, look, just because you have this external stuff that makes you look Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you do these external things that makes you a Jew does not make you a true Jew is what he's saying to the people. Do our hearts match up with the external reality of where we are? Many times we go through the motions and we assume that we are right. 
But it's just like, again, setting our watch to somebody else's watch. We don't know if the time is absolutely right unless we set our watch to God, unless we set our lives to God and the Word of God. Just because I have a watch doesn't mean I know what time it is. It's just like me taking out my phone and dialing 10 numbers and hoping I reach my wife or reach my family. Just because I dialed 10 numbers doesn't mean I'll get the number right. And in many cases, this is what we do. We do the stuff without ever checking what's in our heart. My life has to be the outward reflection of an inward truth. But see, here's what often happens in our cases. We live life assuming that I'm doing good things so God must be happy with me. I'm not sure. Many of you know that I teach for a living. It's what I do. And whether you teach with, with uh, elementary school students or, in my case, I teach college students, what, no matter who you teach, there's always this great joy that comes in a teacher's life. And this is what it is. The day you get to grade exams and you get one of those exams where you know the student didn't study. It's one, of the, it's one of the joys of teaching, I promise you this, because you will see creativity like you've never seen before. You will see students try to use words and mix up words so that somehow you will give them what? Partial credit. That's what they live for in those situations. They want partial credit on the exam. And I get email after email and student and crying student after crying student, Professor, can you please give me partial credit. They love that term, this idea of I almost got it right, where I threw out some words that sound right, so can you just give me some credit for what I threw out there? And this is what we do sometimes. Hmm. We want partial credit. We want God to give us partial credit because we showed up, because we did things that seemed like they would be done by a good Christian. All along, God is saying, I will give you full credit. Just get this right with me. That's it. If your heart is right with me, you get full credit and then some. But oftentimes we live for the partial credit. We live to get the things, to, to do the motions without understanding the truth behind those motions. Another thing that often happens in the classroom, and I'll share this one as well, another thing that often happens is after I've poured out my heart lecturing about some topic or some subject, I often will I'll, I'll assign a paper at the end of class. And the reason I assigned the paper is because I want to see if the students understood what they had been learning for the last hour or two hours. And I assigned this paper, and I assigned hoping that they will show me that they learned what we've just been talking about. But any teacher also knows, the minute you assign a paper, ten hands will go up in the air, and I know exactly what those questions will be. Not one student is going to ask uh, Professor, can you please explain that concept one more time so that we get it clear in our paper? No one will ever ask that. What's the first question? How many pages does this paper have to be? Every time it's the same question. That question is always followed up by the second question, single-spaced or double-spaced, followed up by how large can the font be? How wide can the margins be? Every question is about how can I make it look like I was doing what you wanted us to do. Not a single question is about, is my heart in the right place? Am I learning the concept that was taught to me? This is what we're doing oftentimes. We're going through the motions and trying to make God think that we're doing what he wants us to do. And all along, we're never actually wondering, does my heart represent the inward truth of an outward reality? All over this world right now, there are religious people doing religious things all over this world. 
I've had a chance to see some of those religious people doing those religious things. Sometimes they're in the church. Sometimes they're in other religions and other worldviews. There are folks right now who are wearing uh, hijabs and niqabs and covering their entire bodies except for their eyes because their religion tells them to do that. There are Jain monks in India right now who wear nothing all day, every day, except for a small mask over their mouth so that they don't eat a fly or cause another living creature to die. They are so obsessed with that religious truth that they will live according to it. There are folks in, 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 in India as well who will make pilgrimages to certain, certain shrines in India, and they will crawl to the shrine, and once they get to the shrine, there is food that is laid out for the gods and goddesses, and they will roll over the food, the leftover food, and then crawl back to their homes in over 100 degree heat. Because again, their religion tells them to do these things. I've seen people who put hooks in their flesh as a way to sacrifice or to, to, to hurt themselves as a sign of devotion to their gods or their goddesses. I've seen people repeat mantras over and over again because it will please their god or their goddess. There are people even in the Christian faith who will do things because it's supposed to be the right thing to do. They light candles. They will pray to a certain saint. They will come up and lead worship. They will preach. They will teach. They will do the things that a Christian is supposed to do. Meanwhile, not really wondering, is this the re am I doing it for the right reason? Ultimately, Christ is asking all of us in this, in this letter in Romans, are you doing it for the right reason? Where is your heart when you do these things? What is the motive behind what you do? Because Christ cares about motives. In the book of Proverbs, we read like this, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. And then he says, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish it. Amazing, amazing portion of scripture. That we think we are right with God, but God ultimately weighs the motives of our heart. He wants to know, is your heart in the right place, or are you simply doing it because that's what you were supposed to do? I think nothing has taught me more about this than parenting. Than, than having children has taught me about what it means to actually have love within your heart in the motivation of what you do. It happens every day, doesn't it? I think about it like this, before I was married, before I had children, I would often sit and think to myself that, look, someday if God lets me be a father, it's going to be so easy. It's going to be a piece of cake. All, right, all of you parents are understanding exactly what this means. I, it was going to be so easy. All I have to do is throw a ball back and forth with my sons, and they would throw a ball back and forth with me, and they would just absolutely love me, and it would be the easiest thing I ever did. Every day I would come home from work, open the door, and they would run to me singing, you're a good, good father. <laughs> and, and I would just assume that this is what life was going to be like when I became a father. And now the reality is completely different, right? Now the reality is that I do have to discipline them. I do have to make sure that they're taken care of. My wife and I have to make sure that they're fed, clothed, bathed, changed. Everything has to be done. We don't do it because that's what a parent is supposed to do. We do it because there's a motivation inside us, deep inside us, a love for them that makes us, that it compels us, that we want to do this for them. Because again, the motive matters. If I was doing it just so my kids have clothes on their back, 
They would have clothes on their back, but they would not have the other things that they would need to become good young men in this society and good God-loving children in this world. But if I have a motive in my heart of love toward them, then everything I do will be seen through that motive, and it makes it so much more powerful when we have the right motive in our hearts. In the Old Testament, when the prophet Samuel goes to anoint the next king of Israel, he goes to the house of a man named Jesse, there are several brothers that come forward, and each one is bypassed until he comes to David. In fact, when the first brother comes, Samuel looks at him, and he's a tall man, and a, and a handsome man. He looks like he would be a king. And God says to Samuel, I did not choose this one, because you will look at, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart of a man. And even though the older brother looked like a king, he did not have the heart of a king. But meanwhile, in the wilderness, there was a young man who did not look like a king, but he had the heart of a king, because he loved God. His motives, his heart matters. Solomon says like this, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Jesus says like this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There is such a strong connection between our lives and our hearts. When our hearts are right, our lives start to demonstrate it. Jesus, on his Sermon on the Mount, at least six times he says, you have heard it said, and then he fills in the blank, that you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder. But then he follows it up with, but I say unto you, because Jesus is saying, just because you follow a set of rules, those rules don't count for much because your heart is still in the wrong place. Jesus is saying, adultery doesn't happen the moment you cheat. Murder doesn't happen the moment you kill. Murder happens the moment your heart starts to hate someone. And your heart ultimately controls everything else. And that's why Jesus says, I love all the external things you do. But unless your heart is in the right place, none of it really matters. It has to be motivated by the right thing. So I ask you today, my friends, why do you do the things you do? Why do you do the right things that you do? Are you motivated so that others will think higher of you? Are you motivated so that others, so that you can look down on others? Are you motivated so that you can hide your true motives? Do you do the right thing because you can get God to do nice things back for you? Are you motivated to do the right thing because it looks religious? Why do you do those things? And ultimately, if we can answer that question, if we can come back to the right reason. Do I do it because I simply love Jesus and I love the mission that he's called me to? Is that the reason why we do what we do? There's empty faith all over this world. There's faith that's not really grounded in a living Savior all over this world. But you and I have this great privilege that we get to call on Jesus a living, loving Savior and worship him and live in relationship with him, not just simply following a set of rules, but living in relationship with him, and as a result of that relationship, loving him enough to do the things that he has called us to do. Empty faith is all around us. And what, what does empty faith look like? When a sermon is preached, or when I open the Bible, I read a verse, that verse is for someone else. I hope so-and-so is listening right now. I hope so-and-so reads that verse when they get home, because everything is for someone else. There's only a theoretical stance toward God and his word. There is no actual, this is for me, and how can I apply it? 
What else does empty faith look like? It often looks like a moral superiority to others, that I can condemn anyone else, I can look down on anyone else because I am a Christian, because I go to church, because I preach, because I sing, because I give up my, my, my money to that ministry. I can look down on other people. This is what empty faith looks like. Empty faith is motivated by everything that I hear is for someone else or everything that I hear is ultimately just so that other people can hear it and get better and not believe. That's what empty faith looks like. And today, Christ, through the book of Romans, is telling us, just because we do the external stuff, just because we have the symbols of faith, just because we look like Christians, doesn't really mean we are. doesn't really mean we are followers of Christ. Religious obedience, it looks moral, doesn't it? looks like that must be a good person because he does or she does those things that look moral. But in the book of Romans chapter 2, if you connect what's been written in Romans 2 to Psalm 62, there is a strong connection between those two passages of scripture. In Romans 2, Paul is saying that you look like you are religiously superior to everyone. You look like you are morally better than everyone. But in your religious superiority, you have turned religious superiority into an idol in your life. That you have turned it into a God in your life. That I need to look and act and behave a certain way because that is the new God that I worship. My own image is what I worship. In Psalm 62, there is a verse that connects back to Romans chapter 2 where, where, where he says that the name of God is being blasphemed all the day long because of people acting like this, they act religious, they don't think religious, they don't think like God calls them to think. In Psalm 62, verse 12, it says, he will repay everyone for what they have done. It's a verse about idolatry. But Psalm 62 also says, I find a rest in God alone. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. That's what it looks like. That's what it sounds like to, to break away from all the religious looking things and to just have a relationship with God. My friends, the rules don't get us salvation. The rules simply show us that we need salvation. The rules simply show us that we are broken, messed up people who need a savior to die for us and to love us. That's what the rules ultimately show us. Our affiliations, our memberships, our associations, our symbols, they don't give us salvation. Only Jesus Christ gives us salvation. And that's the truth of the gospel for Christians. That as we walk this path with Jesus Christ day in and day out, there is a temptation to separate ourselves from the Jesus part of it all and to focus on the religious part of it all. There is a temptation to do religious looking things, to do spiritual sounding things, but to break away from Jesus himself. And I'll stress this again. Those spiritual sounding things, those religious looking things are important. If Jesus didn't think they weren't important, he would not have put them there. However, 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 unless our heart is right, none of that else matters. Think about the things that we do here and how much they're tied to the, to the heart. There is a command in the word of God that believers who follow Jesus Christ should be baptized in water, that they should find a connection with God, an identity with Christ, by entering the waters of baptism, being baptized, showing that you are giving up your former life, it's dying in the water and coming out new. 
This is a sacrament. This is an important thing that happens in the life of our church. But the Word of God also is so clear that those who believe should be baptized. The heart matters in that situation. The heart matters in that specific transaction. It's not just that you went and did something, but that your heart should believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior first before you do that. Regularly here at church, we take communion. And when those elements are passed around, there is a temptation to just eat a piece of bread and drink a little cup of juice. But Jesus Christ is so vivid and clear that there is so much about your heart that first has to be taken care of before you can ever do that. He says everyone must examine himself or herself before he or she partakes in the bread or the cup. Because our heart is so important to Jesus. Our heart matters in what we do. Our motives matter in what we do. It's not enough to just do the external stuff, but our heart matters there. Some of us feel like we, we give. We give of our money, our tithe, and our offering. We give in the church. And that's an important, important thing that the Bible stresses extremely well. But again, what does the New Testament teach us? That God loves a cheerful giver. The heart matters. It doesn't simply say God loves a giver. It says God loves a cheerful giver. Our heart matters in the equation. And for every one of us today, there is such a strong temptation to just do good things. But again, those good things don't save us. It's our heart that ultimately matters, and the relationship to Christ ultimately matters. There's a verse in Matthew 7, verse 21 that reads like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name did we not drive out demons, and in your name did we not perform many miracles? Look how religious those things sound. Didn't we do these ultra-religious things in your name? And Jesus responds, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me you evildoers. Because Jesus cares about the heart more than what you did. If your heart matches up with his will and his ways, then what you do makes sense then. It matches up together. Then our good works make more sense. Then our casting out demons, performing miracles, doing good things, all of those things matter if our heart is in the right place. Paul understood this. Paul, the writer of Romans, understood this well because of where he was as a sinner far from God who now understood what it took to know the love and the depth of the magnitude of the love of Jesus Christ. The same Paul writes in the letters of the Philippians in chapter 3, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Take a look at Paul's resume. It's pretty remarkable. He has all the religious stuff down pat. But then he writes this in the very next verse. But whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He considers every one of his religious affiliations garbage except for knowing Christ. And that's all he ultimately wants. He goes on like this. 
I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And here's one of my favorite verses. Paul, this man who wrote the majority of the New Testament, writes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Think about that for a second. Wouldn't the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament, wouldn't the man who spread the gospel to the known world at that time, wouldn't he know Christ better than anyone else? But he says that I've done all these religious things, but in the end, all I want is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's all I want to know. And for so many of us, this is the prayer that we need to have. Because for far too long, we've known about Christ. We've known about God. We've known about the Holy Spirit. But we don't know them. And there's a difference there. If you ask me today, do you know Abraham Lincoln? Or do you know Tom Brady? I would say I know about them, but I don't know them. I've never had a relationship with any one of them. I've never had a friendship with them. I know about Abraham Lincoln's presidency. I know about Tom Brady. I know about his victories. I know about his defeats. I know even how much air pressure he likes in his footballs. <laughs> but I don't know Tom Brady. I don't know Abraham Lincoln. If you were to ask me, do I know do I know my wife? I would say, yes, I know her. Because I've had a relationship with her. I've spent time with her. We've walked through life's ups and downs together. We have children together. Because of those reasons, I know her. I only know about those other gentlemen. See the difference there? This is where Paul is. And he says, for far too long, I've known about God. I've done my religious things and known about God. But now I want to know God. I want to be in relationship with him. I want to have a close bond with him that no one can break. I want to experience what he experienced so that I can experience the power of the resurrection that was in him. Paul is saying that I no longer identify as a Jew among Jews or a, uh, or a Hebrew among Hebrews or a Pharisee among Pharisees. I simply identify as a sinner who needs Jesus Christ to save. And it happens all the time in our culture. It happens where if you are British, then you are Anglican. If you are Italian, you're Roman Catholic. If you are, if you are uh, from, from any other part of the world that you have a certain religion or a certain belief, if you are Greek, you are Orthodox. There's an old phrase even in Boston that says, I am an Irish Catholic Democrat, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> we understand that we identify with our religion. We identify with our culture. And here is Paul saying that I have all of those things, but I first identify with Christ. That's the first and foremost thing that's important to me. My friends, ultimately comes down to this, that Christians need the gospel. Believers need the gospel. We all need the gospel because there is no righteousness in all the world, in any church. There is no salvation except through Jesus Christ. What is the outward reflection of your inward truth this morning? What is the outward reflection of your inward truth? Because that's what Christ has called us to live. In our language, we have a word, moonlight. A word that's actually a little bit weird if you think about it, moonlight. There really is no such thing as moonlight. Why? Because the moon doesn't actually produce light. What does the moon do? It reflects the sun. This is what we are called to do. 
in and of ourselves, we have nothing. No affiliation, no strength, no ability, no capability. But you know what we do? We reflect the S-O-N Son every day on this earth. We reflect the Son of God every day here on this earth. We are that light to this earth not because of what we are, what we're affiliated with, or what church we belong to, or what religious things we've done, but because the love of Jesus Christ floods our heart and lets us do that. He who was without sin became a curse on a tree so that you and I could have this eternal life. He who was perfect in every way became blameful, but became blamed as an imperfect one and took the punishment on our behalf. That kind of love was given to us so that your life and my life could be the outward reflection of an inward truth. And here's the inward truth. I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. I'm full of flaws. That I'm lustful, I'm prideful, I'm greedy, I'm quick to judge, I'm spiteful, I'm bitter. I do all these terrible things. And what do I do then? I run to church. And then I start doing religious things, and I start to look like a good person, and I see that if I do those things, I can mask who I really am on the inside. I perform these rituals and let the world see the good me, that way no one can see my inward truth that I am messed up. This is the story of everyone who's sitting here right now, myself especially. We are messed up people in need of a savior, but a follower of Jesus knows this simple truth. That my outward reality is simply an inward truth that Jesus loved me despite all of those things. That despite everything that I have done, he loved me more than I could ever understand. And as a result, I will serve him because of Jesus. I will love because of Jesus. I will be faithful because of Jesus. I will be true because of Jesus. I will be faithful because of Jesus. I will be generous and bold because of Jesus not because of any religious things that I'm supposed to do. And that's the truth that we live with today. Not because the rules require it, but because the love of Jesus inspires me to do it. That's why I do it. Ritual cannot replace God, my friends. Your heart matters. Spiritual discipline is so important. Praying, spending time in the Word, meditating on God, showing up to church, loving other people, giving of what we have to others, all of that is so important, but it all starts right here, and that's what we're going to focus on today in our time of prayer. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in the presence of God. As our worship team comes back up to lead us to conclusion, the question that remains for every one of us this morning is a very simple one. Why do I do what I do? What is the motivation of my heart? And that's ultimately what God wants to know. And this morning, if you find yourself in a situation where I'm doing things because I think they're right, I'm being nice to other people because I think it's right, ultimately, we have to come to this, this far greater truth that we are messed up people who need a Savior. And Paul calls out to the Roman believers and he says, don't think you're better than anyone else. You need a Savior just as much as anyone else does. This morning, ask yourself, why is it that we do what we do? Because again, our lives must be the outward reflection of an inward truth. An inward truth that simply says, without Jesus, I have nothing. Without Jesus, I am nothing. I need him. I need him. I need him to fill my heart with the love that I need to do the things that he's called me to do.
is just as Paul realized that I may have all these qualifications and affiliations and associations and outward symbols of my faith, but ultimately I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Is your life the outward reality of an inward truth this morning? Where can you change things in your lives this morning? Where can I start to make some corrections? Where can I start to turn around and get back to God first and everything else secondary? Where can I do those things? And as we think about those things, as we ponder those items, as we worship the Word together, this area in the front will be open if anyone wants to come forward and pray and to say, God, I know I've messed up. I know I've been far from you. I know I've been doing things because it looks right, but not necessarily because it's the right thing in your eyes. There's a place here for you to pray. If there's any need that you have this morning, whatever it might be that your life, your family are going through, Lynn and I will be up in the front. We'll be so happy to pray for you. Please don't hesitate to come up and we'll spend some time in prayer with you as well. Let's worship the Lord together. Let's ask Him to come and meet us in our time of worship and to change the things that motivate our hearts this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning, your word that says that ultimately all the external stuff we do, while it has value, means nothing unless our hearts are right with you, Lord God. Let our motivation be right. Let our heart be true. Let our heart be pure before you, that we are doing things because it brings glory to you, because it lifts you up, because it loves you. That's why we do these things, Lord. Let us never lose sight of the motivation you've called us to. Let our lives be the outward reflection of an inward truth that Jesus Christ loves me, that Jesus Christ was willing to die for me, that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe this morning. Thank you for that truth, Lord God, and help us to live out that truth every day. Help us as Mount Hope Christian Church to live out that truth to the community around us. Let them feel the love of God through us every day, Lord. We thank you for your presence, and we thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship you.